Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. This week, I am excited to bring you a conversation with my friend, Philbert Shi, who is the CEO and founder of Structure Research. They are a data center cloud hosting industry analyst and consulting firm, strategic consulting firm that works with owner operators in the marketplace, both in Asia Pac, Canada, the United States, Europe, and, and all over the world. We have a pretty interesting conversation that's a little bit different from normal. We don't really dig too much into Filbert's background and how he got into tech. We really dig into the weeds around the marketplace itself and the evolution of the data center industry. And we discuss what it's uh, what he's learned through the years of research that he's done and travels that he and his team has done into Asia and what it's like to be a U.S. company deploying infrastructure in Asia and what you need to be aware of and mindful of. And the same dynamic is, is, or the same conversation is also had for Canada. So for companies that are looking to deploy into Canada or what the, the marketplace in Canada has looked like over the years and how it's evolved, this is a pretty, pretty interesting, heady conversation that I hope you will enjoy. So without further ado, here is the conversation I had with Philbert Chi. Philbert, thank you so much for uh, joining the I Love Data Centers podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, my friend, where where are you right now? You're uh, you're a, a native Canadian, but where where are you living and working out of right now? Yeah, based in Toronto, um, and I'm working out of Toronto today. Although you know that's not always the case. Um, and today, I've chosen. You know, I work out of a home office. Uh, we're a completely remote, distributed team. But uh, today, I'm working at one of the local kind of startup-oriented co-working spaces, uh, which is always kind of fun just because it's uh, just a great place to kind of, you know, get out of the home and get away from the wife and kids and uh, kind of network and mingle and, and just talk to other entrepreneurs and other startups, uh, what they're doing, and, you know, even talk to them about what they're doing for their for their cloud and their, their data center needs. Right on. So for those who don't know who are or chiming in, what... Uh... What is it that you that you do these days? So yeah, we're uh, we're you know we describe ourselves as a boutique research and consulting firm. Uh, we're primarily focused uh, on the research side, and uh, we are uh, unique in the sense that we just cover one sector. Uh, we cover the uh, larger data center value chain or the internet infrastructure services value chain. Uh, so we're very much uh, just focused on what service providers doing. Uh, you know, what are the kind of headwinds and tailwinds in the industry? How, how big is it? How fast is it growing? Who's doing well? Um, those are the kind of questions that we try to answer in our research. Uh, and, you know, we uh, sell it on a syndicated basis to, to um, providers, to investors, and, and to vendors, uh, those who supply products and services to, to infrastructure service providers. Right on. And you're, you're the founder and CEO of Structure Research. Let me just throw that in there. And if people want to quickly check that out, it's www.structureresearch.com. But um, before we, we dig into the company and get into the industry, uh, and I, I got to say, what, what drew me to you and Structure Research was uh, one of the original white papers that you put out uh, when you went off on your own and started the firm. And it was one of the few white papers that you could that I've read that I clearly 
new wasn't written by someone who just spends their time writing articles and who's you know paid by a company just to write articles, but someone who actually understood the technology intimately and greatly appreciated it. And then it just so happened that your your business partner Jabez reached out, and that's kind of how things got rolling with us about two years ago. But um, before we dig into all of that. Uh, Talk to me about where where you came from, man. Like, how how did you get into tech? Did you grow up around technology? Did you have family members that were bringing home computers? Like, what what was that journey like for you? Yeah, no, it's uh, happy to talk about that. And actually, our our website is actually structureresearch.net. I was uh, unable to afford .com, and it was taken. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I I you know I probably didn't necessarily grew up with tech like a lot of kids these days do. You know, my dad was very much into the arts uh, and myself. So uh, myself, I like sports. So, you know, my childhood, I, I kind of spent most of that, my time in those areas. Uh, took a few computer programming courses in high school. Uh, didn't really excel. So I guess I didn't follow the <laughs> software engineering, software development path uh, career-wise or education-wise. Um, you know, went to school, you know, typical kind of liberal arts education and, and then you know, I you know, went to grad school and found that, uh, you know, academia or, you know, I studied political science and just those things were just not for me. Uh, interesting to read about. Um, interesting, you know, always enjoyed reading, um, but um, perhaps not something that I wanted to make a career out of. And um, so I kind of by accident started to dabble in journalism after graduating. Um, and this was just about the time, you know, during the mid to late 90s when, when kind of that dot-com kind of craze started. And, you know, I, I found it interesting. You know, I found that, you know, hey, you know, this this internet thing makes computers and technology a lot easier to do. So I was I was drawn to it and I started, I worked for a few startups, you know, couple, you know, they all tanked. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I thought, boy, this freelancing thing, you know, maybe I'll try it. And, you know, I, I think the kind of the, I can't remember what year it was. It might've been 99 or 2000, uh, 2000 I guess. I stumbled across, I, I was, um, Tracking a couple stories about um, you know when the when the bus started to to kind of uh, play out, uh, there were quite a few guys covering the, the empty data center story, uh, which kind of brings us full circle to where we are today. Uh, you know, you know, I think Exodus Communications, one of the first firms I, I came across, and you know, data centers were empty, and I thought, oh, huh, well, that, that that's interesting, and so um, did a little bit of research, became interested in it, and then. Um, at that, at that time frame, you know, still freelancing, still covering just a wide range of tech, and then um, um, wanted to pursue that a bit more. So I, you know, I grew up on the west coast in Vancouver, and then moved over to Toronto in about that about 2000 uh, to kind of pursue that further. And just by chance, I ended up jump, you know, bouncing around. It ended up uh, getting a full time gig covering uh, the web hosting industry, uh, kind of the. I guess you could think of them as the tenants of these data centers, uh, kind of the smaller service providers. And back then, they were really small. I mean, some of the first hosts I met were like, you know, guys who had, were reselling like one, two, five servers. Uh, and these were, you know, true kind of you know, wild, wild west days. Um, and so that's kind of, yeah, I mean, I, I started covering the, the hosting industry full time, started to live and breathe it. Uh, you know, that was like 16, 17 years ago. And, uh, you know, really never stopped. Uh, just, just kept covering and jumped to the research side uh, in 2005. I felt I, I you know, um, kind of wanted to, you know, look at the, you know, I was really interested in doing just more detailed and, and doing deeper dives into the work rather than just writing stories and, and, and kind of finding interesting personalities. I, I really want to understand the, the technology and the underlying business model. Um, and so, you know, I had I had met Andy Schroffer, who started Tier 1 Research back in the day, who, who you know, um, took a chance on me, hired me, and kind of got, got you know, got, got my start on the research side with him. Uh, and he was just a hell of a, I mean, he was a hell of a mentor, um, you know, still a good friend, uh, but really got me, you know, started and, and, you know, was the primary person responsible for where I am today. So what um, process, yeah. if, if you don't mind me interjecting, but what process did yeah. you follow uh, to really uncover what was going on with these companies and, and the technologies? Were you, was it just through a series of interviews and constant interviews or how did you, how did you start to pick up the knowledge of and the language of the industry? Yeah. I mean, as a guy who doesn't have like, you know, a technology or engineering background, it's, it's always tricky. You know, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you go about understanding the business? And I, and again, 
I just have to go back to just some of the, just all the great people. Like when you're on the journalism side and when you're on the research side, you just get access to, to, to great people, smart people, guys who founded these companies, guys who, you know, came up with a business idea, guys who've been in data centers literally, you know, all day long running these businesses. And if you talk to them, you know, they, you know, just are able to articulate difficult technical concepts, you know, articulate the, the business challenges, you know, you know, why you do things a certain way, um, why you don't, or why I failed, or why, you know, I decided that, you know, I needed to, like like the software guys did, just leave and start all over again, um, you know, because they came across all these different challenges. And, and so, yeah, talking to, to the, the operators, uh, the entrepreneurs has always been very, very useful. And then, you know, you take back, you know, their insights, and then you just, you know, you read about technology, you know, you uh, you do your own research, uh, you try to understand, you know, and, and in this process, I find that, you know, really anybody can get a grasp of the industry quite quickly, as long as you get access. And I've always been, been fortunate to to be able to get access to the right people. So the the experience that you have, I mean, you got in at like just the right time. I think you, both of us uh, did having, I mean, you saw the bust of 2000 and then you got to ride uh, the tale of the comeback and then experience the 2008, 2009 bust again, and then the comeback again. Mm-hmm. And who, you know, one of the conversations that I know you and I have frequently is what's going to happen over the next couple of years. And is there going to be another bloodletting in the industry? Um, but the, the evolution, right? So that, that the objective view that you have, having not worked for a service provider, but having seen multiple service providers over the last 17 years, I think is extremely valuable and and important. And one of the things that I appreciate most about your experience, um, I'd love for you to kind of discuss for those who maybe haven't seen that evolution over the last 17, 17 years, but how, how would you describe it? You know, when you were talking to those MSPs that only had one, two, three, five servers that they were selling at a time, um, who have evolved over time, like what, what is the, the trending that you see in the industry? Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, what's really interesting, uh, you know, about infrastructure is that it, it tends to be, you know, just adopt, you know, if you think about the adoption, it's pretty incremental, you know, uh, it doesn't happen, Overnight, you know, the the just like you know, dial-up ISP was around for a while, and then one day it was gone. Uh, the kind of the move to doing things, you know, the move to this model from doing things on-site and proprietary facilities, and you know, buying your own servers, racking and stacking. I mean, and moving that to kind of the hosted cloud model is is it's a process, uh, and it, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, and I think that because of that, that reflects in how the kind of the underlying businesses, you know, operate and the people operate them, how they, how they move and how they react, which is to say, you know, quite, quite honestly, that it's not always that quickly, right? Uh, a lot of these guys, you know, those smaller operators never really did evolve uh, in the time that I met them. Um, you know, they grew their businesses and, you know, were fortunate enough to sell them, sell it to one of the consolidators. Uh, some of them, you know, are still out there and running these businesses, which are, again, because of the and the, the relative youth and infancy of this model uh, had been able to sustain themselves for a decade or, or longer. Um, having said that, you know, you know, there's there's a lot of forward-thinking operators and, and entrepreneurs who have really, you know, taken this business uh, up several levels. Uh, we know who the names are. You know, there's no need to kind of reiterate who they are, but you know, taking advantage of, uh, you know, experiences, uh, taking advantage of, you know, failures that they've they've encountered uh, and then learning from their experience and then, you know, taking things to the next level, you know, understanding how to use automation uh, to make yourself more efficient, understanding how to create a user experience, understand how to, you know, manage customers, how to, you know, and then, you know, like even today, you know, you, you could say that we're, we're continuing to evolve. We're seeing, you know, operators um, kind of take advantage of data uh, to, to come be better operators, to be better at dealing with customers. Uh, to identify, you know, bottlenecks, trouble spots. Um, I think all of that is just kind of very typical in how the, the industry, you know, it, it, it tends to, you know, try things out, experiment, uh, learn from its mistakes, uh, and then continue to improve and evolve. And, you know, the, those best practices, you know, get spread across the industry as companies become successful and others in the industry try to emulate or learn. So, and that's, I think that that would be my last point. I mean, I, I really think that, 
this industry is great and that it's it's competitive. Everybody, you know, a lot of people compete compete against each other, but it's at the same time the industry together competes against you know uh, old kind of traditional models. Uh, and because of that, you know, I've, I've always found that uh, it's you know, uh, it's a very open industry that people tend to share. Uh, and again, you know, people in some way, I think the executives and operators and entrepreneurs in the sector. Uh, have a sense of you know we're in this together, uh, and and, that, and I think that's been a, a contributor, uh, and it's helped companies kind of progress and evolve and, and ultimately succeed. It's a, it's actually a very interesting to point uh, point out the interrelations of the owner operators and service providers in the industry. I mean, something like as simple as Nanog, right? Where you have all of the network engineers for all the major players and providers who are coming together on a regular basis to share best practices are important. Um, IMN and cap rate and some of these other events that I know, you know, intimately where you have executives, you know, meeting up at very least once a year to share best practices routinely happens um, the other interesting thing to note is what, what most, I guess, people on the sales side of the house who work for these managed service providers and data center providers and telecommunications companies, I think it's mostly the MSPs and the data center providers. What they don't fully understand and realize is that they're competing against internal IT. So, so much of that infrastructure is currently being managed internally by a company. And it's not so much you're competing against the other data center down the road or the other managed service provider down the road. You're actually competing against the internal IT department at that company that's trying to maintain the reins of that infrastructure and doesn't want to give it up to a third party. And it's it's um, that's been really fascinating for our team to see is in a lot of these tier one markets, you still have major players that are owning and controlling their infrastructure um, that don't have scale to justify owning and controlling the infrastructure. Uh, and in the tier two and tier three markets, it's even more, more that case. So in the tier twos and the tier three markets across the country in the U S alone, there's still the vast majority of infrastructure sitting on prem in house with a client and a internal team that's managing all that infrastructure. And it's it's just the way it's always been done. And I think that's a slow, as you were talking about incremental growth, that incremental change that happens in tier one markets slowly then has to trickle down to the tier two and tier three markets. And there's still a lot of opportunity in and around that space. Yeah, I mean, just your comment on sales. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the it's always been that battle. You know, you're 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 trying to sell against you know, an in, in, in internal staff member who's protective of, you know, their value and their, you know, uh, their assets and their investments. Um, you know, it's, it's an interesting sales process. You're, you're not only you're selling against kind of, you know, non-typical kind of competitors, but you're also, in, in some sense, you're not even selling a specific product or service or a price point. You're selling an idea, a mod, an operating model. And I remember one, you know, one sales guy <laughs> spoke with him, and he, he was so frustrated with it. He just said, man, it's like I'm knocking door to door selling religion. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I thought that kind of hit the nail on the head in many ways. Um, that's what's interesting about being in this business. So what's your perspective on the, you know, t- two things. One is the the major telecommunication providers who in the late 2000s and you know early 2010 11 12 went on a major acquisition spree buying data center companies and managed service companies and integrating them into their portfolio only to a couple years later now us seeing Savvis or, or I'm sorry CenturyLink Windstream AT&T Verizon all these big telco companies now divesting themselves of those assets how you know? What's your perspective on on that evolution, and, and maybe what caused that, or or how it's affecting the space? It's definitely been a a pretty interesting development uh, that's kind of transpired, I guess, over the last eighteen months or so. Um, I think it's kind of part of a you know, there's been a, a longer history behind it. I, I, I think that back you know in the early two thousands, you know, I, I remember the I don't know if it was even called was it WorldCom Verizon, you know, when they they acquired one of the early managed hosting companies, Digix. I think this was like two thousand two or three, 
um, so I, I think that you know the telco operators identified some of them at least identified very early that there was a kind of a meaningful and, and valuable value you know a good value proposition and a good fit with kind of telecommunication services and, and you know data centers and infrastructure services. Um, you know, there was there was obviously kind of a, a few deals back then, and then you know you saw kind of a, a quiet period, I guess you could sort of speak. You know, I think AT and T, you know, kind of followed suit and you know bought their way, bought bought a couple hosting companies. You know, I think managed application hosting companies. Uh, and then you know, I, I think he, you know, you talked about that that second kind of um, not necessarily bubble, but just the the downturn in, in two, I think it's two thousand eight into two thousand nine. Um, and I think that, you know, when that happened, you know, a lot of people, you know, noticed that infrastructure services outsourcing was still pretty stable. You know, it wasn't necessarily going gangbusters, but the businesses, you know, were, were stable. People were still obviously running their infrastructure. They weren't, you know, shutting down everything. Uh, and these companies were still growing, but, um, you know, you know, in an environment where everything is falling apart and collapsing, uh, it got quite a bit of attention, and I think the telcos kind of revisited, like, hey, this is actually pretty valuable. You know, a lot of operators back then were actually benefiting from the fact that, you know, so many organizations were up against it, you know, you know, budget-wise, that they were like, hey, maybe I should pursue this this outsourcing thing, this cloud thing may just work. Uh, well, hey, I can get out of, you know, the void, making these huge CapEx investments, forget building a data center, I can just outsource it to somebody. So, uh, and I think that that kind of was the start of, okay, uh, you know, maybe we should revisit that and maybe we should buy these companies and get into this business because it sure kind of makes sense. Uh, you know, not only it makes sense as, as a standalone business, but it would, you know, fit into the fact that, you know, we supply some of the networks, you know, we already operate data centers, we're kind of in this business already, let's kind of do it, you know, let's get a platforming and do this the right way. So that was kind of the thinking, um, I think, you know, the several different kind of thought process, processes were going on. Um, but as you know, you know, things have, you know, not always gone well with some of these deals and, and we've seen some of the divestitures and, you know, I, I think in a nutshell, you know, to make kind of a long story short, you know, it's, it's, I think it reflects the difficulty, frankly, that, you know, and, and the different mindset and the different skill sets and the different kind of talents, you know, that you need to run these businesses well, you know, efficiently and profitably, um, you know, it, 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 you know, it's a different sales process, uh, as, as we've talked about. Um, just, you know, it's a different operating mindset. Uh, you know, it requires increasingly, especially on the, the cloud side, increasingly you know, requires a significant amount of software development resources. Um, you know, CapEx, you know, huge amounts of capital investments. And I, I think you put all that together. Um, and, you know, considering how competitive the market is, uh, a lot of these you know, telcos were thinking, oh, well, maybe we could kind of take a step back from this and, and, and kind of get into or stay focused on some of the easier businesses or the ones that, not, you know, um, are not this difficult to operate. So, yeah, I, I think that that kind of all these factors taken together have, have pushed uh, those telco operators where we are today. So where, where do you see things now moving from here? I mean, we're seeing a lot of consolidation going on. We're seeing some very big private equity firms coming into this space, making acquisitions, trying to roll up properties. The uh, it, it's I'm trying to you know predict what's going to go on over the next two, three, four years, and trying to take it into context of what's going to go on in the macro economy as well. And I'm I'm still kind of I don't have an answer, right? <laughs> I don't have the the crystal ball that's that's telling me exactly how this is going to play out. I see a lot of opportunity, and I think if someone makes uh, some very strategic and smart moves in this space, there's a ton of opportunity. You know, the simple reality, for example, that we really only have two major players in the space that have their have a consistent story around a global connected infrastructure platform is is pretty fascinating to me that no one else has been able to step in to compete uh, but it also shows me that there's you know there's some opportunity there for someone who can put together that kind of story do you you know what what were you what are your thoughts on all that yeah i mean that's um you know it's something that uh, that we you know we hear you know it's you know our team you know we're always kind of trying to figure out what you know what's next and you know how is this going to How's this going to change? What's the future going to look like? Um, you know, I, I would go back to, you know, I think your, 
I would go back to like some of our earlier comments on how you know the the sectors you know have got a lot of moving parts and probably has more moving parts than it ever has. But again, it moves kind of incrementally. So I, I think what that you know what I mean by that is, is I, I think that the you know the next two to five years you're going to see just kind of a, a continuation of a lot of these trends, which is to say. You know, a lot of these platforms that are looking to consolidate uh, across multiple markets, uh, I think that'll you know, continue to happen. Um, you know, you'll see, I, I think, um, more, you know, separation in the marketplace. So as, you know, industry is starting, you know, the, the marketplace is starting to shift, right? A lot of the, the you know, the, the wholesale, you know, there's a lot more competition in the wholesale space as, as, as kind of these big clouds uh, present a huge addressable market and some of the big content providers um, you know, make it easy, you know, just create a, a bigger addressable market for wholesale data center. Uh, whereas on the retail data center side, certainly there's, you know, opportunity for outsourcing, of, you know, uh, as we talked about, there, there's plenty of opportunity out there. But at the same time, you know, with, with the rise of, of the public cloud and, and, of course, all the other kind of cloud, cloud-based infrastructure services, there's no shortage of options for, you know, organizations to use those kinds of services rather than, Kind of stick with the co-location model. So, uh, I think if you if you think those trends are going to continue, and I think you know both of us certainly agree that's going to be the case, um, that's going to shape the market, uh, in, you know, in that direction. So you're going to see, um, a, you know, a lot of these operators operators make a decision between going wholesale and retail. Uh, you're going to see the guys who decide not to get into the wholesale game think about, okay, how can I, you know, be a part of this, you know, I'm about of this cloud. Kind of value chain. I'm not going to be a cloud provider. I'm not going to, you know, get out there and, and, and try to build, you know, a cloud platform and compete against Amazon. Uh, but as a data center operator, I can, you know, uh, enable, uh, be, an, be an onboard, be kind of a gateway to the cloud. Uh, and I think, you know, I think the operators out there uh, are going to have to make that decision. It's like, who am I going to be uh, and how am I going to capture, uh, you know, the opportunity as people kind of shift, you know, how, how they buy, how they outsource. Yeah, that, that key point you made about being a gateway to the cloud mm-hmm. is I, I think there is a shift where the traditional real estate folks who run these data center companies are starting to understand that there's a lot more going on here than just real estate. And then if they don't understand the complexity of the the network and the complexity of all the different options that people are looking to connect to from the data center that they're going to be left behind. So that's, you know, only further speaks to how many different moving parts there are going on in the industry. But if you're, uh, if you're in the game and you're not just providing massive amounts of power and space on a large wholesale basis, you have to add some other significant value to your customers. And that connectivity and that gateway is one of the key components uh, for, for those service providers and, and their customers at the end of the day. So I, I want to kind of, Expand on this a little bit. I know that you and your team have spent a significant amount of time in Asia over the last couple mm-hmm. of years, and you've you understand that market probably more intimately than, than at least anyone else that I know. Um, how do you see things evolving over there, or how how has that market evolved over the last couple of years? You know, perfect case in point. I I I had someone call me the other day and say, "Hey, I have uh, a friend of mine that has a company here in the states." They are uh, thinking about going into Indonesia. Are there any data centers in Indonesia? And I kind of had a laugh and I was like, yes, there, there definitely are data centers in Indonesia. There's data centers all throughout Asia Pac. Um, you're, you don't have to build a data center if you, you have nominal requirements. Even if you have large requirements, there's, there's options out there. But so little is known about what's available out there. And so people just simply default to the Equinix or default to digital realty as the options. So, um, you know, I'm curious what, what your perspective is on, on that space and what you've learned about Asia pack. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, my wife is from Indonesia and so I, uh, not only got married there, but I, I have visited data centers uh, in, in that marketplace. And there's certainly a, a very wide range of facilities, you know, some very typical stuff, uh, that you might expect to see in North America, but also some stuff you probably wouldn't expect. So, um, but yeah, and, and that's kind of just, you know, what I think is the kind of defining characteristic of the region when it comes to, to data centers and, and cloud providers is that it's it's not, a, you know, APAC. It's not Asia. It's not um, 
a singular kind of, you know, homogenous region. It's actually extremely diverse. Um, and each kind of national market or regional market has its own, you know, characteristics. Uh, you know, they're at different stages of development. Um, if you look at the region, you know, some of the the most mature and the healthiest markets are, you know, two of them are city-states, essentially. They're essentially national city markets being Singapore and Hong Kong. Uh, you know, Hong Kong, okay, it's it's a kind of, it's a part of, technically a part of China, but it's essentially its own data center market. It's really just one big city. Uh, Singapore, of course, you know, many people have, uh, you know, come across the market there, and it's kind of the same way. Um, Japan is kind of a smaller country, but it's also, uh, you know, it's a much more mature data center market than other countries, you know, in, within the region, uh, and it does have multiple national markets of, that are of a meaningful size. And then you have Australia, which is kind of way down under, um, but also has a couple uh, markets uh, that are quite mature. Uh, and then, you know, if you think about the other, you know, they're, you know, India and Thailand and Indonesia, Malaysia are, are all at different stages of development. And, you know, in general, my observation has been, again, it's quite, you know, very early stages. Um, diversity is, is one of the big things to think about there. I would say, and of course, the, you know, kind of maturity, uh, you know, there's, again, a bunch of these markets are at a, a very, you know, on par with what you might expect to see in North America or Europe. Uh, and there are a lot of markets that are, you know, probably a generation or, or anywhere from five to 10 years behind. Uh, so that's, I think, you know, where, you know, where, where we stand today, I would say the other thing to think about, you know, when you, when you think about Asia is that uh, it's probably not, it's not as, as fragmented, each of these, these markets fragmented in the sense that there are a lot of competitive and viable independent uh, providers. Um, you would, you would come across less of those uh, in Asia. You would come across more, Kind of larger telco backed or uh, kind of large outsourcing firm backed uh, data center operators uh, in that region. Who are some of the companies, if you could speak to, that you found kind of have have their act together and are are playing the game, but don't may not have visibility to the U.S. market currently? W- which market? Like, should we start off in Singapore or Australia? Great question. That was very broad. <laughs> um, I mean, it's up to you. I mean, what, I guess let yeah. me rephrase it. If if we take Australia out, and um, yeah. not you know nothing against Australia, but if we're just looking, you know, Japan through China through uh, through Vietnam, Bangkok, Singapore, Philippines. I've got the map up in front of me in Indonesia. If we're looking at at that area, right? Um, which where would you say the biggest density of infrastructure sits? I would say, I mean, you, we, you know, we have to, to point to Singapore, and I, I know our research director, Jabez, uh, you know, would, would love to be here talking about that. He's a native Singaporean, and he's kind of spent the most time on the ground in that marketplace when it comes to our, our, our Asia practice. And Singapore is a great snapshot because it it is not just occupied by, you know, local Singaporean comp- you know, operators. Uh, you have most of the names that, you you know, that we would have come across uh, in North America are, are competing in that market. So Equinix, Digital Realty, uh, Global Switch uh, out of Europe. Uh, and then you have, you know, local operators. So the biggest operator there would be some, you know, Singtel. But the, but when it comes to, you know, kind of the smaller, you know, entrepreneur-backed, maybe single or, double, you know, two-site, you know, operations, they're very, you know, they're quite frankly, there are very few of them. You know, I would, you know, point to one um, that we got to know very well called Kingsland started by kind of a wealthy, I think, real estate family. Uh, and they were able to, you know, you know build a business in, on, you know, taking advantage of all the, again, this big cloud build-out that's, you know, happening on a global basis. And, you know, built a, built a wholesale business and um, filled it up uh, and it's doing quite well. So that'd be one example. But in terms of, you know, other kind of, you know, I'd be hard-pressed to think of other really successful kind of entrepreneur-led kind of almost family business type. Uh, you know, again, most of the operators are, associated with much larger uh, organizations. I yeah. imagine that's that, probably definitely the case in Japan and China and, and Hong Kong. Yeah, I think Hong Kong is, is kind of another good comparison. Again, Equinix is there, you know, all the all, you know, digital realty, a lot of the names we know. Um, I think what's interesting about Hong Kong, you know, versus Singapore is that, you know, again, the kind of quote, quote, independent ones are mostly, you know, uh, a lot of them are tied in, again, to, to larger real estate uh, groups. So, uh, again, companies that that have been in the larger, you know, the wider real estate business, but have looked at, 
you know, the opportunity in data centers and converted some, you know, old properties and uh, old buildings, uh, in, you know, for, for, for data center infrastructure. Uh, again, in Hong Kong, you know, a lot of competition, but again, not a lot of kind of smaller type of entrepreneurial firms that, that you would, you know, expect to see in, in other markets. So if you're a U.S. company that's looking to deploy a point of presence into the region, because what are some of the differences that you're going to have to prepare for or think through before you do that? And I'll, I'll give you an example, right? So as we work with customers that are going into Europe, understanding VAT alone, like the the value, uh, what does VAT stand for? The what is it? The something value add tax, value add tax, right? That could be rather significant, uh, can drastically increase the cost of doing business, and also understanding that just in general, the cost of doing business in Europe is significantly more than it is in the United States, tends to blow U.S. IT managers' minds. And you know what used to be a good idea? Hey, let's develop a point of presence in Europe quickly becomes, holy crap, can we really afford to do that? Do we really want to do that? And they have to go back to the business model. Um, is there a similar dynamic for people who are, who are going into the Asia-Pac region? Yeah. I mean, just like continental Europe, uh, I mean, you're, the, the cost of power across the region differs, right? So uh, you're looking at, you know, that exactly. If, if you're looking to expand in the region, you're looking at a significant, you know, uh, you could be looking at a significant, you know, price price difference. And so each market is different. You'll have to kind of make your case. Um, some some of the markets, you know, will have they have different, you know, the, the underlying infrastructure costs are going to be different. Uh, the business environment varies drastically across the region. You know, Hong Kong and Singapore have been popular jumping off points uh, for U.S. And, and European companies because doing business there is easy. Uh, the government's, you know, behind, you know, very much supportive of business. Uh, English is, is widely spoken. Uh, the legal and government institutions that you know kind of underpin the economies are you know based on systems built out and you know you know with the British heritage uh, you know very familiar types of, of systems. Um, but that's not always the case if you go to say you know any, you know, all, any of these other markets. Uh, so you know I think we we've definitely advised you know uh, service providers uh, and end users you know. Uh, when it comes to thinking about their Asia expansion, uh, so getting them to think about some of these different different dynamics, and you know, quite often we found, you know, at least in our tracking, that uh, most of the, you know, uh, most of the times, uh, going with an operator that's based uh, in the U.S. or Europe and and has extended their platform out to to Asia, kind of working with that provider for that kind of familiar experience and having them help you navigate all these kind of ins and outs has definitely, you know, um, has definitely helped. Yeah, so that that's a great point. So a way for US companies to almost bypass having to understand and make sense of all the the differences in the regions around Asia Pac is to leverage someone who has already made that investment and has deployed and can give you a consistent experience no matter where where you're going, right? Yeah, at least when you first enter the region, you can obviously do some different things once you get set up there, but yeah, that's I think often a very advisable course of action. So from a cost of power perspective, how, how much does it drastically range? Like in the US, if if you're in Manhattan, it's anywhere from twelve to eighteen cents a kilowatt hour. If you're in Quincy, Washington, it's two cents a kilowatt hour, right? So that's that's a pretty large differential. Is there the same type of thing in that region? Yeah, it's definitely the it, you know the the the, the market the power costs are different as well as the real estate. So that's that's another you know difference that that you'll find across the region as well. I think one thing that's unique is also real estate availability. You know, in say desirable markets like Singapore and Hong Kong, you know, just finding a place to to build is extremely difficult. So, you know, off the top of my head, I would say the ranges are pretty comparable in, in, in you know, to what you might see um, in, in the U.S., like between, say, New York and, and Oregon. You know, Canada, we have the same dynamic here. You know, Montreal, you know, I, I sort of Toronto is maybe close to triple the, the cost of, 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 of power in, in Quebec. I don't know if it's that drastic across the region, but uh, in Asia, but, it, but typically it's, again, you're going to see variability in every national market that you come across. So what are some of the, the biggest lessons that you've learned in your travels in that market and in that region where, you know, if someone is going to start embarking on 
deploying infrastructure there? What, you know, what are maybe one or two of the three top things that you think they, they most definitely need to know before they go? I would, I would definitely say, you know, again, not, not to kind of be too repetitive, but understand the diversity, you know, in the region within the markets. So I think the first thing is to, to kind of understand what are your goals and then to match that up with uh, the market that, that you, you know, ultimately settle on as your, your first kind of expansion point. I think that's, that's definitely, you know, job number one, because uh, you can just sit there and say, hey, I want to go to Asia. But like, you know, where, you know, you've got to narrow your search down. Uh, and that search has got to be based on, uh, obviously, the, the business case, uh, you know, the, the, the business's specific requirements and needs. Um, I would I would say that's number one. You know, I, I would I would say spend you know another thing you know with, that we've learned is you, you've got to spend time in that market. Uh, I think that you know you, you know it'd be advisable to to meet people, you know, talk to people in the sector, uh, just to get a feel for you know the personalities, the dynamic, you know how business is done, how fast or how slow the market works, you know what are the expectations, you know how customers buy. Uh, all, you know, all of those things, you know, what verticals are prominent in that market, you know, I think just doing on the ground work uh, is, is extremely important. You never want to kind of fly blind um, and just make too many assumptions. Uh, again, each, you know, region, each market has kind of a unique history, a unique culture, in many cases, a unique language. And, and just understanding the, the specifics of that, you know, market it would be really helpful in just kind of helping an organization avoid, you know, making, you know, running into, you know, things that they don't expect. So I think that that's probably the best advice I could offer uh, is, again, spend time, understand the diversity, ask questions, get to know people. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Um, so you mentioned Quebec and Toronto and Vancouver. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I want to pick your brain on is that that other major region that's that's North America uh, and the the whole Canadian marketplace and how, you know, being the, the neighbor to the north for those of us here in the United States, rarely do people hear about or consider putting infrastructure up in and around Canada. And yet, I've actually seen a significant amount of companies talking about doing that lately. Um, can you kind of walk through what the dynamic of the market in, in Canada, the data center market looks like in Canada today? I think that. You know, when you think about Canada, you think about a huge landmass. Uh, but you know, when you look at our population, and not everybody's aware, but you know, we have about 35 million people, uh, which is like is that half the state? You know, half the population of the state of California, something like that. So you can imagine that there, you know, with, with a country of that size, that there are only a certain amount of major markets. Uh, Toronto, Montreal being, you know, the obvious two. If you look back at you know the history of the sector here, you know, oh, well, quite frankly, a lot of end users. Primarily in the small, you know, the SMB to bid market, a lot of them use U.S.-based hosting companies. You know, the market has just been, you know, uh, there's just been more services available. Market's more mature, the technology more advanced uh, down south in the U.S. Um, you know, my organization, we use U.S.-based hosting services, um, and it's not uncommon. Um, that's, you know, starting to trend away, you know, as the, the sector's developed and, and, you know, there's kind of a larger I pretty much would say it's global, you know, it's, it's global wide where organizations are much more conscious of, you know, where their data is located, how it's being handled, who has access to it, what kind of like, you know, governing body entity is behind it. Uh, and so I think especially as you move up markets, uh, organizations are just, you know, as they come onto this outsourcing model, they're also saying, hey, you know what, we're not going to use a U.S.-based option, right? You, we, we may work with a U.S.-based company operator but you know the infrastructure is going to have to be handled managed hosted secured uh, in in country so that's that's a driver uh and i think that's why you see you see you know uh, a bunch of you know familiar names operating in this marketplace and i think that you know the activity that you you kind of alluded to um had that has been you know behind this kind of recent wave of, of, of data centers uh, growth, uh, you know, and in this in 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 this country, uh, again, has been driven by the, the large cloud platforms. So, 18 months ago, you know, there was no Amazon, Azure, or Google cloud in this country, right? If you're using those services, you were, you know, you were storing your data south of the border or, or wherever. That's pretty um, shocking. Didn't know that. Yeah, it is. I, yeah, like literally, like 18, 24 months ago, they, you know, these big clouds were not here. They are all here now. 
so, and this is again very recent development, um, and has driven a lot of wholesale, um, a lot of wholesale uh, supply to come onto the market uh, based on that, you know, those needs. And you know, talking about that, you know, power differences in Toronto, Montreal, a lot of it has just gone over to to Montreal. So a lot of the big clouds, big public clouds that are based in Canada, if you're using them. Uh, your data is hosted somewhere uh, in the greater Montreal area uh, versus Toronto. Again, because of that almost triple, uh, you know, triple the cost, the power difference. So, yeah, that's a really kind of interesting uh, recent dynamic uh, up here in Canada. Uh, and it seems to, you know, uh, based on my, you know, the time I've spent in that market, it seems to continue trending in, in, in that direction. To provide some context here for, for those who aren't uh, geographically aware uh, I, I I think it's interesting to note that Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal are all within what like 400 miles of each other, 350, 400 miles of each other, relatively close. Another, yeah. so it's really not that far. So it's like the distance between, let's say, New York and uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, so not not that far from each other. Whereas the distance between Winnipeg and Toronto, the closest one. Winnipeg is like right north of North Dakota, and Toronto is right on the northwest tip of of New York, right? So that's a huge spatial differential. And then you've got Calgary and Vancouver out west, where Calgary is like 200 miles north of Montana, and Vancouver is like right over the border from north northeast Washington State. Um, so that's massive landmass. And you really only have, I think, from what I can tell, there's really not much going on in Edmonton. I've heard Vancouver, Calgary activity there. I've heard Winnipeg, but not too much in Winnipeg, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal. I've, um, I was speaking with a mutual friend of ours who works at Root, da- Root Data Centers now, uh, who went over there from Q9. Is it Q9? I want to make sure I get that right. The The data center company in Toronto? Yes, Q9. So, so he's went over to Root Data Centers, and he was telling me the story um, and just the difference between the Toronto and the Montreal market and how much cheaper it is and the total cost of ownership is is far cheaper in Montreal because of the cost of power and tax incentives and whatnot. You know, is, is that does that come into play fairly often in that market where people will consider Montreal over Toronto because of that dynamic or... Um, you know, outside of the major cloud, you know, I'm sorry, I'm asking a million questions here, but <laughs> um, outside of the major cloud players coming into Canada, if you're looking at a traditional business that's looking to host in that region, are they going to be swayed to go to Montreal over Toronto because of, of that dynamic? No, it's a good question. And I, and I would argue, um, and this will play out, but I, um, I I would argue that this is more a wholesale kind of public cloud specific dynamic um, just because of the, the mass size of the infrastructure that's being built out. Um, and of course, just, you know, the, the price points of, of consuming cloud infrastructure. Um, I would say that in more, yeah, like more, you're right. I think that, you know, kind of more traditional businesses, um, you know, they've historically come to Toronto uh, just because Toronto is, you know, very much the center of business activity, uh, you know, in terms of finance. Uh, it's the largest economy in the country. Uh, most of the U.S. organizations that have Canadian branch offices are based in Toronto. Uh, it has the largest tech sector, largest startup community. Um, you know, there are developing tech markets around kind of the, the greater Toronto area out to kind of Waterloo, where, you know, Research in Motion uh, was founded. Uh, BlackBerry, for those of you <laughs> who, who still use those devices. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that... that um, at least in terms of picking Montreal over Toronto, uh, when it comes to kind of, you know, if you're not thinking about kind of large wholesale deployments, uh, I still think, you know, Toronto is still probably driving uh, the, the, the data center market. Um, and, you know, it'll, it'll get to the point where, you know, um, you know, certainly there is wholesale capacity in Toronto. Uh, DuPont Fabros is, is, is bringing quite a bit online and, uh, you know, I, I, I think at some point you're going to see you know deployments start to spread across the country as just cloud usage grows. Um, but yeah, to your other question, you know, is it spreading to the rest? Is it is it moving westward? Um, that that's probably you know again going to going to take a bit of time. But you should I, I think that you know if if these platforms continue to grow like Office 365 and AWS and Azure and Google as we expect they do, 
uh, you will start to see, uh, you know, you, you simply going to have to have a deployment out west uh, that's north of the border. So, you know, customers and users in BC and Alberta, you know, if they, you know, they may not want to, you know, use something in Oregon or, or California, uh, it will have to be somewhere out there. So that could be the next kind of frontier. Um, I would pick that frontier over, you know, the middle of the country. This is just less popular, less dense. Another interesting dynamic uh, due to the data privacy laws, right, between the U.S. and, and Canada and some of the stuff that actually I'm going to be, uh, by the time this podcast releases, it'll be weeks prior, but I'm about to be heading to Capitol Hill to meet with congressmen and women with the Internet Infrastructure Coalition to try to do some lobbying on behalf of, of our industry. And one of those major topics is going to be data privacy laws and, and security and whatnot. Does that, do you see that coming into the picture with Canadian businesses looking to potentially deploy data in the United States and maybe deciding not to because of, of that dynamic? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think they're increasingly you know, tracking this stuff and being aware and educating themselves on it. Um, I think it is just frankly just the whole, you know, uh, what's happened around kind of, you know, your, you know, who's looking at your data and who has access to it uh, is a driver behind, you know, organizations just becoming more uh, inclined to say, hey, listen, you know, we don't need to, to worry about this or we don't want to deal with this and we're going to host in country and have the, you know, uh, not have, uh, you know, our data in a, in a jurisdiction where, you know, another a foreign government can, can access our data or retrieve it. Or, uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely think that it's something that, you know, Canadian organizations are, are going to be aware of and, uh, we of course have you know great proximity and access to the to the U.S. Uh, news sources, and so we'll be following it uh, very closely. One of the other questions I have for you is in relation to the the work that you're doing today. If I'm a service provider, what can you do for me? Like, I, I'd love for you to kind of dig deep into the level of expertise that you and your team at this point are, are now bringing to the market. It should be relatively apparent by the conversation that we've had so far, but even if it's not, I'd love for you to kind of speak to maybe some of the projects that you're even doing right now and, and how um, how those are playing out. You know, we love, you know, we, we kind of pitch ourselves to, to service providers, you know, guide operators in this space and say, hey, listen, you may or may not have a chief strategy officer. Uh, and in many cases, only the kind of larger uh, firms can, can afford one. Um, so we position ourselves as an outsourced chief, you know, strategy and competitive intel officer all rolled up into one. So if you have you know, competitive intel needs, if you have research needs, if you have just kind of a need for data insight, trend tracking, you know, customer win tracking, uh, kind of competitive uh, analysis, if you need all of those things that typically a chief strategy officer would oversee, uh, you know, he would oversee a team maybe that collected all this data uh, and then articulated to the management team and use that data to strategize and build the company's um, you know, go-to-market strategy, you know, we can play that role for you. Uh, and the advantage of working, you know, with the structure research is, is the fact that we're third parties. So our perspective, again, back to what we were talking about earlier, is unique in the sense that we, our insight is formed by conversations with uh, literally dozens, if not hundreds of companies in this space. So, you know, we get to, you know, digest uh, a lot of uh, perspective uh, that perhaps, you know, an in-house competitive Intel team would not be able to do. So, you know, if there's a new product launch, if you're working at, you know, an operator, you see your competitor launch product, you can't call your competitor and say, hey, so, you know, you know, how much, you know, why did you build this product? What customers are using it? You know, how much does it cost? What technology are you using? Um, you know, is there any uptake right now? I mean, those are questions you just can't call your competitor to find out. But if you're working with us, you could say, hey, Phil, you know, you, you probably got briefed on this. You know, what do, what are your thoughts? Uh, and, and we would be that, that type of resource through both our and publications, uh, as well as our uh, just getting access to our to our analyst team. So, yeah, in a nutshell, that's that's what we do. You know, that's kind of our core function uh, as well. You know, we, uh, you know, as we discussed, we we're, we're involved in in kind of other specific projects. Uh, you know, Asia is kind of a big thing for us, uh, so we're very much uh, keen to to kind of be the the default kind of research resource uh, out in that region for data centers and cloud. Uh, yeah, we're, we're we're very active again, just dealing with with operators and executives. You know, our research typically speaks to the executive, uh, and, and we also advise uh, investors and, and and help vendors that are kind of selling into the space, help them navigate this kind of very uniquely fragmented and, and distributed you know marketplace. 
I love it, man. And, and that insight, that cross-functional insight or cross-market insight is extremely valuable. And, and the perspective is extremely, I'm going to say it again, but it's just extremely valuable. And that's that's what we love most about our job is being able to sit where we sit and see so many different perspectives. But I, not but, but on that note, what are maybe some of two, you know, one or two trends that you see that you think are, are successful, you know, where the owner operators in the industry, both nationally in Canada and in maybe even globally, uh, what are they doing right? Like, what is something that you think more companies should be emulating? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I think, let's see, I would say two big themes to kind of point out. One, you know, I, I always think, you know, you, you've got to, I, I think the successful companies think the game, right? They don't play the game, they think the game. So, you know, they're, they're you know, less successful providers in this space have kind of done, you know, they founded the company base and they kind of found an area of success uh, that formed their basic value proposition and they haven't evolved it in a decade or so. Um, those companies will, as, as you mentioned, what's, what's great is that the market is so young that they can continue to succeed and they continue to, to grow. But as the market matures, as the market changes, uh, you know, you've seen this in, in say, for example, the, the, the small business hosting space or even the dedicated service space where if you're not continually striving to be more efficient, uh, if you're not, you know, understanding the differences, you know, the different ways that consumers buy services or what, you know, or what they're looking for, um, if you're not thinking where the, the market is changing, you're seeing uh, your, you know, your opportunity, your addressable market shrink. Um, those that evolve, uh, those that kind of pivot, uh, you know, good example would be something like a data pipe, uh, or logic works companies that have you know seen what's going on in the larger kind of computer infrastructure market and were the first to kind of jump on and say, hey, listen, we'll embrace. You know, we're not going to try this this crazy you know long run game trying to beat Amazon uh, at what we do. We can't. You know, we pretty much can't outdo them in any area. So let's embrace them, be a partner, and, and build value on top of that platform. So uh, companies like that that have you know are going to be the the long term success cases that that understand how the market is is moving, uh, thinking about that, and then adjusting their business model sometimes in drastic ways uh, to address that. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's, that's you know, those are the kind of the, the big things. I, I guess the other thing to touch on would be, you know, this, this kind of larger discussion about, you know, data and analytics. Um, I, I've, I've always felt that service providers, you know, produced a lot of great internal data that probably sat on you know, various types of internal systems, but we're never exposed to the customer. They're always in the knock or you know, the support team had access to it. It was dumped on sheets or in, in some kind of app application, uh, but it was never kind of organized, analyzed, and then you know, made valuable by, by saying, hey, you know, we can actually turn this around and, and put it in front of the customer and you know, build dashboards in their portal so that, that you know, they have keener, in, you know, deeper insight. Can you um, can you give a hey, specific yeah. example? Like, what what is a data set that you think is is valuable to that extent? Just like you know, uh, performance, uh, infrastructure performance, kind of just monitoring logs. Like, you know, what's you know, how's your you know infrastructure performing? What are some of the patterns we see in terms of your traffic usage? You know, and how can we adjust your infrastructure accordingly? Uh, I think that's you know kind of an area that I think that that um, you know providers have had success in. Um, and I, I, again, just being able to expose that data in a, in, a, in a way that's useful to the customer is not just, I, I think the key is that it's not just valuable for the customer, but I, I think the service provider uh, also benefits because they can be just, you know, more efficient rather than, you know, having a guy have to call you and say, hey, you know, can you tell me a bit about my performance? And then, you know, the provider scrambling or, or not, you know, having kind of an easy, you know, a quick and easy way to, to answer the customer's question. When you have these kinds of metrics being presented and, uh, you know, the customer's just consuming that uh, and, you know, it's a very you know, much more efficient way to operate, I think. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's almost, I've been diving into some technologies that provide that kind of intelligence from a network perspective back to an end user customer. And it's, it's kind of mind boggling to me how these technologies aren't more prevalent in the industry today and how a lot of it is just new, new stuff coming into the market that provides easy access for customers to see quality of service um, and, and measurement against service level agreements for basic transit and transport services. But taking that one step further into the data center itself, uh, the, those log files, as you're saying, could be very valuable to the end user customer 
so that's that that is very good feedback and i hope that any of the owner operators that are are listening today are, are taking notes well phil i greatly appreciate you taking the time man maybe uh i maybe you could tell our listeners about your partner jabez and what his experience is i know we mentioned him before but i'd I'd love to give him a shout out because he is invaluable resource in the experience that he has. Yeah, Jabez. I mean, Jabez. Nothing but great things to say about him. Um, you know, he's been the driving force behind uh, the, the the data center co-location side of our our organization. So, um, you know, I spend still the majority of my time, you know, following and and tracking more or less tenants of data centers, you know, service providers, uh, the big public clouds. Uh, what's going on uh, with private, you know, with with hosting and cloud services, uh, and then Jabez like you know, spends his time focusing on the data center operators and, and the, business, the co-location business itself. Uh, so, and then we meet in the middle because uh, we find that you know a lot of what's going on obviously affects the entire ecosystem. Uh, we found it's kind of a good way for us to tackle and uh, tackle the marketplace and get a a full perspective. You know, we, we definitely don't like a lot of large organizations, research organizations tend to be really siloed. And so you don't kind of get that ecosystem wide perspective. Uh, we, we're trying to avoid that. Uh, and I think when I you know brought Jabez on about four years, three or four years ago, I felt that that, you know, that, that he could really help our organization do that. And, you know, and of course, again, you know, um, I think it's, it's pretty obvious that our, our Asia practice that he has been, you know, again, driving force behind that as well. Um, just, you know, getting on the ground, spending a lot of time in that marketplace and just, you know, very deliberately and one by one doing, you know, what I did, what I did over the years, which is to meet and speak with all the operators. Uh, and I said, hey, this is if you if you're going to know this marketplace uh, and this is the advice that, you know, my mentor, you know, Andy, who started tier one uh, gave me, which was like, hey, just start one by one, call them all up, talk to them, visit them, tour the data center. Uh, ask them about their business, and and, and Jabez has uh, very systematically done that uh, in, a, in a, actually a very short time frame. And pretty much, I think you know we can confidently say at this point, he you know in, in quite a few markets in Asia, he is, literally knows each and every uh, meaningful you know operator in the marketplace. So any of you you know uh, listening to this podcast that, that want to tap into the expertise, you know he's out there and uh, uh, happy to talk some shop at any time, literally any time in the day. Yeah, that's a depending on what segue. time zone he's in. That's a perfect segue into um, the next question I have for you, which is how can people get a hold of of you and and the stuff that you've got going on? Yeah, just send us some, you know, our contact information is is all over our website, structureresearch.net. You can find us on LinkedIn as well, but uh, just reach out to us directly. We, you know, pride pride ourselves in being, you know, a boutique shop that's easily accessible with no bureaucracy. So there's no wait time, you know, you don't, you know, it's going to, Take you a few weeks to get a Gartner analyst, uh, and, and you know uh, there's a pretty big lineup sometimes. Uh, but we're uh, available pretty much anytime, and uh, you can text us. You know, and we're we're, we're try to make ourselves available as soon as we can. How about uh, any kind of social media stuff that you've got out there? Is that worth checking out? Yeah, uh, just follow us on Twitter at Structure Res. Structure what? Structure Res. Sorry, Structure uh, Res. It popped off the E A R C H of research. Gotcha. So structure R E S. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's- right on. And I'm going to have links in the show notes to to all this stuff as well. And I think worth worth noting here before we sign off is the the relationship between our two companies is not just mm-hmm. you know the the friendship that that you and I have, but the sharing of resources and material and information um, that benefits both both parties and both sides. Uh, you know, J- J- we leverage Jabez as our overlay uh, for anything in and around Asia Pack as our customers have needs or, or questions over there um, and leverage you for, for stuff going on in, in the Canadian market because of the, the knowledge that you have in that space. So it's just, uh, you know, I've greatly appreciated the the friendship and the the partnership. And we have some some interesting things that are going to be coming out here. We're, we're going to be having available on our website a lot of the content that Structure Research offers uh, and have, we'll have some links to that on the show notes as well for anyone who wants to check out. But the very last question I have for you, Phil, before we sign off here is, do you love data centers? <laughs> I love data centers. I live and breathe them. Well, thank you so much, my friend. And I'll be seeing you soon. All right. Take care. Hope to see you soon. Peace, brother. 
So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.